morning, everybody. Uh, how neat is that? Gil's report, clear of cancer. They give you a proud dad report also. This time last year, my oldest son, Cole, had a broken back and uh, was kind of forced out of the sports he loves. But last night, he won a regional title. And, uh, <clears throat> and his eye opened up. He had stitches last week. So we've been to the emergency room twice in eight days for the same eye. And uh, we still got one more week of the season. So uh, I think we'll be back next weekend as well. You know, they give you a deal if you come frequently enough, and the Carluccis usually do. The amount of stitches in our family is now approaching the hundreds, so um, we're getting there. But uh, that was fun. I want to tell you a story um, about an amazing place that I hope all of you get to visit someday. So a few years ago, I had the pleasure of visiting the African-American Smithsonian uh, Museum in Washington, D.C. I actually visited it twice in the same year. We took the boys one summer, and then uh, later that winter went back for the National Prayer Bre- Breakfast and told some friends, hey, this, if we can get in, we've got to go. It's, in my opinion, the best museum there. That's the neatest thing to see. And there are just special things everywhere. You go up to the top floors and you get to listen to amazing music and see artifacts of um, just the, the move of, of African-American music in the United States over the years. And my favorite exhibit... Uh, on the top floors is of black athletes. And so you get to see Jackie Robinson's jersey, Carl Lewis's medals. I mean, it's amazing. It's like one amazing thing after another. Your jaw drops. Serena Williams, Tiger Woods. I mean, they've all given things to be a part of this exhibit. But the powerful part is if you go down. And the way they have it set up is you get in an elevator, and as you drop floors, it takes you back in time to the 17th century and the beginning of African-American history in our country, which has to do with the slave trade. And so you start in this sober setting, and uh, you just see things that you've never seen before. They they found amazing things that we just don't get to see on TV or in our culture. There's really true uh, originals, and, and you're just caught up in how terrible that time must have been and how complicated the reasons were and... Uh, the terror that many people experienced, and it's very, very sad. And many of you know the history. You move through that time, and you get to the antebellum south and kind of the peak of slavery in the United States, and that being the economic driving force in the south and even for much of what was taking place in the north. They did a great job weaving through the debate. Not everyone in America agreed with this. There was a fight from the very beginning. America wasn't all a slave state. There were just certain places that it was. And so this debate is taking place. And and, and so you see all of that. And then you get to the Civil War, which we all know about. But my favorite exhibit of the past history has to do with what takes place right after the Civil War. You walk up to a, a section of the walk and you see these signs and they look like plaques. And what they are is they were plaques and signs that were placed on the outside city limits of these new communities founded after the Civil War called freedmen towns or freed women towns. So many of you know the slaves were set free and they were given a few acres and a donkey. And many people stayed on the land that they had been on previously as slaves and they began to farm that land. Many of them were sharecroppers. But there were many who organized and got together and traveled into the frontier or to a place uninhabited to build their own communities, these freedmen towns. And they actually had some of the plaques that stood outside of the town. Here lies Nicodemus, 
are John Colony. These are just different names of these exhibits or, or these plaques that you would see. And they would talk about the values the community was settled on. And you'd see that these um, just amazing people would build schools together. And they'd build churches together. And they started banks. And they started newspapers. And they started community organizations. And they had volunteer fire departments. And they had a way of policing their own community. They did all of this on their own with just about nothing. And you're moved by the incredible sacrifice and the incredible things people can do when they come together in unity. Not just unity, but unity around purpose. See, they were not ready to just continue living and trying to survive. They wanted to experience all that life has for it. The celebrations, the weddings, the celebrations even of funerals, the celebration of life. All of these things were first-time experiences for many of these people. It was just a moving, moving uh, scene, especially if you try to imagine the sacrifices needed, the hard work that was needed, the teamwork, all of those things. But for a moment, I want you to imagine the joy and the hope, the creativity, the new life. Think of what it had been like. It was a renaissance. It was a renewal. It was a revival that was taking place in these communities because freedom had been given and life could be pursued and you had people together. Those communities, by the way, would not have been built without there being many people doing their part. It's amazing. Now, I tell you that story because it's very similar to the book that we're going to be teaching for the next three months, and that's the book of Nehemiah. Many of you know the story. If you don't, that's okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it today. But the book of Nehemiah is the detailed example of what it looks like when God's people moved by God come together and they build something. They create something together. They weave their lives together. And renewal is what follows. But it has to be something that people do together. Now, uh, as we move through this, you'll see that during the book uh, and the story of Nehemiah, they rebuild the city walls and the city gates that had been destroyed. City walls and city gates were very important at that time. It wasn't just meant to keep people in. It was meant to keep people safe. Those walls have been destroyed. And so it's an amazing accomplishment that the city walls are built in 52 days. That's all it takes. They rebuild the city walls and the gates in 52 days. But what you'll see is if you read through Nehemiah, and then you can actually pull Ezra in. Ezra is a, a parallel account. You'll see that there were more important things being built than the temple walls and the city walls what was being built was community and purpose, and purpose around God's covenant with these people. And if you understand uh, the covenants that existed with Israel at this time, you know that God had made a special covenant with the Jewish people, and it was their job to make a home for God in this world to be a holy nation. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart, but here's the reason why, to make room for God. The temple was holy. The scriptures are holy. The church is holy. Why? To make room for God in this world. And so they were able to return to the center of this whole covenant, to Jerusalem, and again to be able to worship together and serve together and connect to their old history and reestablish some of their beautiful traditions like caring for the poor and welcoming the alien. All of these beautiful things that were so unique about Israel, these things can all happen again because they're home and they can be together. Let me give you a little more background in the book of Nehemiah. And so I want to give you this background today. I want to connect it to where we're at. And then I want to talk about the process that I think God is giving our church to go through that comes right out of the scriptures. 
So, as I mentioned, <clears throat> Nehemiah is the story of God using Nehemiah and some other people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This happened after a terrible war with the Babylonians. So the Babylonian Empire is this big bully to the east. They travel west, and they begin to uh, destroy small cities and small strongholds in Israel. And as they do that, they begin to haul away certain people. Eventually, in 586 BC, they take the lost stronghold, which was the city of Jerusalem. And when they entered the city, it was total destruction. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. Homes were destroyed. Death was, <clears throat> I mean, you can't, it was unimaginable. But some people were left alive. Many of them were hauled away to the east to Babylon. They had to take this terrible journey. Many died along the way where they were to live as political slaves, political refugees for several generations. A few were left behind to live in the ruins and what was left behind. So imagine for both of the groups that survive, nothing in their life has been so unsettling as this. But God had made a promise to Israel in the middle of their suffering. He made a promise to them while the armies are outside the walls. He made a promise to them while the, the walls were being torn down and people were dying. And the promise was this. You're going to be taken away, but 70 years later, you're all going to, or not all of you, but some of you will come back. See, that's what God does. God makes promises to people in the middle of their suffering. He always does this. We have a hard time hearing it. Because the pain is noisy. But God made a promise, and he kept his promise. And so three different waves of people come back to Jerusalem. So the first is Zerubbabel. You can read him about him in Ezra. He comes back, and he rebuilds the temple. Next comes Ezra. Ezra comes back, and he restores the corporate worship of the community there in Jerusalem around the temple. And last comes Nehemiah and his friends to rebuild the city walls. 52 days is all it took because many were apart. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 says, Then I said to them, this is Nehemiah recounting the story, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said. And they replied, here's the key, let us start rebuilding so they began the good work. Let us start rebuilding. And they began the good work. So the walls were built, the temple was built, but what was really being built is this identity, this nation, this community, their purposes, their shared vision, corporate worship, their practices, their traditions. All those things needed to be rekindled. And that is the life that came. Just because the walls were rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt doesn't mean anything was there because what is God after? God's after a people and a place. Not just buildings, not just places. But he's always after a people in a certain place. Nehemiah chapter seven, verse four. Look what it says after the temple or the walls are built. Now the city was large and spacious and there were few people, people in it. And the houses that had not yet been rebuilt. So the structure's there, but there's no life yet. So Nehemiah gets together the elders, and they begin to go out to the families, and they figure out, they use the genealogy that had been recorded in, in Jewish tradition, and they, find, they found out actually where people lived 70 years ago, which family lived in this house or in this area, and people begin to come back, and life begins to fill the city again. 
And the things that, that bring people together began to happen again. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, you can see it behind me. Ezra takes the scriptures and he stands up in this square so everyone can see him. He gets up on this raised platform and he begins to read the scriptures to the people. It's a celebration. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And then verse 5, Ezra opened the book and all of the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Why they stand up? They stand up in reverence. This is the first time in many years this is taking place. It's kind of similar. Some, I hear from you, many of you, you come back to church for the first time. And by the way, it's a celebration for me every time I get to see new people. I met two new babies this morning. That's an extra celebration. But you, you say when you come in here, man, it's like, I'm so glad to be back. It's so, it, worship's different. And it's electric today. Ben's got it turned up. It's a party. <clears throat> it should be like that for the next several months. It should be a celebration when people are together. So people stand up in reverence because they haven't experienced this in a while. They have reverence for the scriptures. Then it begins to get, it's, it's red, and they fall down on their knees, and they actually begin to repent. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 there's time for that, but not right now because now is the time for celebration. Chapter 8, verse 10. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I mean, it's time to celebrate. They've been apart. They didn't have the shared experience, but now they do again. And it's time to celebrate. It's an amazing story of renewal, and I'm excited to kind of break it down for the, in the months to come. So that was then. And here we are right now, and I'm excited because that story is so parallel to where we're at. In the church world, pastors are describing the next several months as like planting a church, like starting over. That sounds horrible and exciting. But something new is, is upon us. And we have a people and a place to rebuild. More importantly, we have a community and shared vision and shared lives and shared celebration and shared grief to rebuild. During this series, I'm going to ask you many times <clears throat> to take steps, excuse me. I'm going to ask you many times to take steps towards your community in the next three months. That might look like serving. That might look like doing something that Gene's going to tell you about at the end of our service today, something called good, Do Good, Feel Good. Share a need on our Facebook page. Go on the Facebook page. Find someone in our community that has a need and move towards them and serve them. It's time to re-meet your church. It's time to rebuild. And I'm going to ask you several times to be the kind of person that is a part of something like that. And listen, the community that we're building is not just any community. I mean, the problem with that word is it's used all the time nowadays. But hopefully you understand when we talk about community within a church, it's unique. It's not special. I mean, we're messed up people. Okay, so let's just say that community is never meant to be lifted up on some pedestal that we're perfect. <clears throat> we're a great big mess. <clears throat> the difference is, though, that we are trying the best we can to rely, rely on God's grace to change us. This is a community that is centered around Jesus. And all of the things that come with Jesus, 
We are a community that finds hope in Jesus because our rescue has already come, and he continues to rescue us. We celebrate salvation. We center around that. We're a community that centers around Jesus as our friend. We get to see what God is like as we nurture our friendship with Jesus. We get to see what God is like as we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us, which is the spirit of Jesus. We center our lives around Jesus because he's the king. This is hard for us as modern Americans to say someone's in charge. Someone actually knows how my life should go better than I do. Yikes. Right? That's a hard one. But he knows us better than we know ourselves. And not only is he present with us right now, but he's down the road paving a future for us. And he only wants good things for us. But it's as we bow our heart to him that we experience freedom and health. It doesn't come other ways. And even if you just look at what leads to freedom and health in the world, people don't even have to believe in Jesus to say yes to his principles and they benefit them. But you get to know him. We center our lives around Jesus and his vision. You know, the vision, I'm going to describe it this way. Our job as a church is to fill this space, that space out there, your communities, your business, your homes with the manifold and the manifest presence of Jesus. That's your job. But that's a job that can't be done on our own. We do it together. When I'm with some of you, I experience certain parts of Jesus. And when I'm with others of you, I experience different parts of Jesus. The vision is too big for any of us to handle on our own. Only he could do it. But what he does, he says, I'm going to impart power and gifts to all of you. And together... You fill this earth with my presence. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. <clears throat> the message says it this way. The church is Christ's body, Messiah's body, in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. You don't have to be a fan of the church <clears throat> to be a fan of Jesus. And I think a little bit more of his presence, his kindness, his love, his courage, his sacrifice would be good for the world. It'd be good for your office. It'd be good for your school, good for your neighborhood. How is that filled with us? We fill that space. So again, I'm going to ask you, the next three months, how is it that you can move towards others? What needs to change? The fullness of him who fills this city, this county, this area, your homes, whatever that may be. And I know many of you are ready for something new. I mean, I'm kind of speaking to the choir. Many of you are here, okay? For those of you at home, I know many of you are ready for something new. Next week is the anniversary, at least here in Colorado, of like everything just shutting down. Do you remember? Like that Wednesday and Thursday were so weird. I was confused why people were mad at Rudy Gobert, who, by the way, is a basketball player, if you don't watch SportsCenter. He licked the microphone when COVID was going around and got in a lot of trouble. But everything starts shutting down. <clears throat> we canceled services. The next week, we look at our upcoming events page, and I'm like, oh, let's just put postponed on all these. Well, postponed became canceled. A year. 
I know many of you are ready to rebuild and reestablish and reconnect, to share vision together and weave your lives together with other people. I know many of you are ready for that. I also know that many of you are not doing well. We keep hearing this. We have a lot of marriages that are struggling, like more than usual. But it makes sense because COVID creates all kinds of pressure and pressure exposes our cracks and it's hard to just ignore those things or stay busy during this time. And so the pressure goes up. I know there are many people who, like, they're in this crisis of loneliness coupled with fear. So they're literally accentuating the problems of the two. We have people who are angry. Our kids are not doing well. Like, I could go on. I don't want to. Because this is meant to be a celebration. Listen, there is no vaccine for loneliness and despair. There is no vaccine for relationships that are falling apart. The cure for those things is different. And it comes partly in what we build together. Part of the cure for what our culture is going through is actually Hugging someone, smiling at someone, offering, someone uh, uh, offering to have someone into your home to have dinner. Part of the cure, I've already heard it from you, <clears throat> is just stepping foot in the room or showing back up to your life group if you feel more comfortable with that <clears throat> or visiting someone that you can serve. That is part of the cure. It's not just the vision, but it's the thing that we need right now. Listen, we're scattered. We already know what the country is like. It's divided. The fault lines of division are just like, they seem to be increasing. But you know, the church is scattered. The church, in some sense, is, is just kind of lost. There's no connection. We had a study a couple months ago from Barna that said a third of all Christians who are part of a pre-COVID church no longer have any connection with any church. And half of all millennials... Online just stopped working. The fear of being together is very real. I mean, we have some pieces to pick up. Just as Nehemiah did, we look around, things are in ruins. But there is new life, there is new vision coming. I love what Andy Stanley says about vision. He says, vision always stands in contrast to the way the world is right now. This is what he says that's even more significant. Vision demands change. If you want something different, literally, it demands change, and the change comes from us. And so, again, what God is trying to do by weaving people back together, not just to have friends, not just to smile, not just to have things to do, people to see, but to actually have something meaningful to build, which, by the way, is the strongest type of community. The word for that is communitas. Communitas is the strong... The strongest type of community that's built when people do something hard together. So teams experience this. Soldiers experience this. Churches are meant to experience this. Couples who work through their problems experience this. That's what we need to share. And that is healing. I'm going to mention a couple books today that are really just fantastic. Um, the first one is a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. 
It's a little book just about community. His premise is that we, people need their tribe, and a tribe is formed around just that communitas, something uh, meaningful that they have to do together. Like you have to survive together. You have to build this together. You have to uh, accomplish this together. Those are the strongest types of community. And not only are they strongest types of community, we actually need them to thrive as people. But throughout the book, he weaves this question that was kind of like the, um, the motivation for writing this book, and it's this. Why is it that the, in the United States, our military suffers from PTSD more than um, our counterparts in other parts of the world? So we all know that you know, when the book was written, it was about five or six years ago. We're coming off the backside of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And we have all these soldiers that are coming home, and they have very high rates of PTSD. Twice as high as like their British counterparts were, that were in the same wars. And then you look at places like Israel. Israel's always at war, it seems like. They always live under threat, but they only have a PTSD rate of 1%. But here in the United States, our soldiers are experiencing this over, uh, with overwhelming, um, in overwhelming ways. It's widespread throughout our military. It's also widespread in our military when only about 10% of our soldiers actually experienced combat. So he starts asking the question, why is this? And then he gets into the psychology. He starts interviewing counselors, and he finds out that many of these soldiers came home, and what was more traumatic than what they experienced at war was coming back to an isolated, individualized, separated culture. No one understood what they went through. See, that's what Israel has. They all understand. So they process together. No one understood. And they came back to a radically individualized culture that actually um, adds upon the trauma. What they're finding is that the PTSD has more to do with what they return to than what they left. This is what he says. It's, these are haunting words. The individualized lifestyles of Americans brutalizes the human spirit. This is all pre-COVID. Yikes, where we're at right now. No wonder people are doing terrible. So I ask again, how's God going to lead you to be a part of rebuilding? Something that's absolutely essential for all of our healing. All right, let me move on. I'm going to get to the process that we want to share with you in the weeks to come. Uh, four things, reflect, restore, rebuild, and renew. All of these are in the book of Nehemiah. Mention them, introduce you to them today, and you'll hear more about them in the weeks to come. So the first is reflect. This step cannot be skipped as much as we want to. As much as we just want to jump to, to, to other things, we actually have to stop and prayerfully assess what has happened to us over the course of the last year. We need to survey the damage, just as Nehemiah did. One of the first things he did when he got to Jerusalem is he rode around the city and he looked at the damage. He assessed the changes. He assessed the wall. And part of this step of reflecting is not just to assess, but it's actually to mourn every loss that has occurred. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Why? Because if you don't grieve your losses, it's like cancer and poison on the inside of you. It's meant to get up and out. We're meant to lament our losses. We're meant to lament our losses with God and with other people. 
Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God, the God of heaven. This is one of those things that modern Americans have a hard time doing. We, we just love comfort. We love always saying, I'm fine. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of emotional energy to sit and say, hey, here are the things I'm mourning. Here's what's happened. Reflection means to grieve. So we're going to ask you to grieve some of your losses. Reflection, by the way, also means to celebrate the wins. We have people who have been given promotions over the last year. People in this church have written books. People have written new music. One of the songs we just sang is one of Aaron's new songs. That's a COVID classic. I can hear him back here laughing at that. People have started companies. There are tons of babies. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to celebrate. So we reflect, we look back, we look at the losses, we look at the wins. It's necessary to be a healthy whole person that they then can move forward. Okay, so we're going to ask you to do that starting next week. Number two, part of the process we see in the book of Nehemiah is restoration. And the way we're talking about it here at Cornerstone, it's the restoration of relationships specifically. Okay, the rebuilding has more to do with actually what we do. The restoration has to do with this relational connection. In chapter 4, verse 14, they're actually asked to go do the hard thing and protect their family. It says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. Your relationships absolutely matter. The world is full of hostility. We all know that. We're not very good at moving towards others with reconciliation. We describe it here at Cornerstone as peacemaking. We kind of stink at it. We have a hard time moving through hostility. We have a hard time being empathetic. We have a hard time owning our part in the conflict. Okay, We have a lot of people that are divided right now. I read a study this week um, in one of our, our news agencies that said a fourth of all American adults are estranged from someone in their family. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. That's complicated, right? But literally... Millions of people live estranged from someone that they love. And millions of people right now live estranged from their other communities, like their church community or friend groups. What got my attention about the study that a fourth of Americans live um, estranged from a loved one is that the numbers are going up. Lots of conflict. What it tells me is we're not very good at working through conflict. Of course, it takes two parties, all of those things. It's complicated. But it's going up because we lack something. So this process is a process of restoring certain relationships that have been damaged. Reconnecting. Asking for forgiveness. I mean, maybe you have something to clean up from the election. Maybe you have something to clean up because of COVID debates. Maybe certain people have felt rejected because they haven't been able to spend time with others. Those are the things to clean up right now. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Another book I'm going to tell you about today is called Bowling Alone. It's a little older. It goes back to the year 2000. It's an old classic now. Bowling Alone, the collapse and revival of American community. This is what they say. Based in research, you can read it. It's a big uh, book somewhat scholarly, says for two-thirds 
the 20th century, a powerful tide bore America into even deeper engagement in the life of their communities. So for two-thirds of the last century, we were coming together. But a few decades ago, silently and without warning, that tide revered, reversed, and we were overtaken by a treacherous rip current. Without at first noticing, we have been pulled apart from one another and from our communities over the last third of the century. And he was saying that in the year 2000. You can read and you see all the numbers. So bowling leagues that don't exist anymore. Softball teams that don't play together. Book clubs that just aren't happening. Social good organizations like PTO, PTA, Elks, and churches. If you share those things with uh, Gen Z or Millennial, they're like, what? What are those things? They weren't just places to go be with people. They actually stood for something. Suburban sprawl, divorce television, increase of money leads to leisure, overworking, the mobile culture, all of these things are reasons for this stuff, but what it's done is it's pulled people apart. Andy Crouch is another amazing teacher, spends a lot of time talking about power, talks about money as power. He says, money is distilled power. And here's one of the curses of us having so much money. We are now the first culture in the history of the world that can live our lives and survive apart from meaningful relationships. You can go through your entire life never seeing another person now. Delivered at your door. Into your garage. Restoration is part of the process. It's number two. Number three, rebuilding. This is the part I think we understand. Nehemiah says, let's start rebuilding. They started the good work. But here's the part I want you to see, chapter three. We'll get to this in a few weeks. It's really cool. You get to chapter three, halfway down, and you see this phrase repeating over and over again. Next to him. Next to her. Next to him. So Nehemiah records, here stood Brian doing his work. Next to him, Aaron. Next to him, Jen. Next to him, Cheryl. Next to him, next to her. Side by side, building, rebuilding together. So what this looks like here is you serve somebody. You take advantage of this, this thing that you're going to hear about in a moment. Do good, feel good. You share a need. You meet a need. This looks like re-engaging in a small group, maybe leading one. This looks like uh, if you're new to Cornerstone, you come to the visitor event, just meet people. I mean, it sounds silly, but that's a step of rebuilding. I can't imagine moving and trying to find a new church during this time. You guys are amazing people. Let's be together. Our students are going to camp this summer. That's happening. Our college students are gathering together to worship together. There are things that are happening. That's what rebuilding looks like. And we rebuild community the way it's always been rebuilt, through relationships. We learn to trust each other. We celebrate. We give. We serve. We spend time together. We show up. Those are the things that, that matter. So third is rebuild. Fourth is renew. And this is the part that has less to do with us and more to do with God. God is always breathing new life into his people, and he's doing that right now. So we really do look forward to what's next and what's new. Amazing scene happens in Nehemiah in chapter 12, verse 43. 
The wall's been built. Scriptures have been read. People have kind of gone through ups and downs. Nehemiah's had to get on them about a few different things, but we get to chapter 12. And Nehemiah says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to celebrate. We're going to do something new that hasn't been done. And he forms two choirs. And the city's surrounded by this wall that you could walk around or you can walk on, the ramparts. And he sends the two choirs up on the walls, and they march around singing and worshiping in different directions. So a city that stood in ruins, just a few weeks later, is full of people and these choirs that are marching around. Now, I can promise you, I am not forming choirs to march around this church or Boulder. That would be super weird for us. No weird things here, right? But look what it says at the end of verse 43. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. God was doing something brand new. It was full of joy. Celebration is part of renewal. I think parties are part of our future. Dinner parties, birthday parties, anniversary parties, NFL draft parties. Who cares what the reason is? It's Monday. Let's have a party. (laughs) Celebrations together. Those are coming. Worship nights. Aaron's got a whole album of new worship music that many of us are saying we're ready for it. It's part of the renewal, what God is doing new. So, again, I'm asking you, how can you take a step, or maybe more than one, in the weeks to come? Just be open. Hey, a church in Boulder is not a small thing. We have a great big vision, and we can't accomplish it unless we're all a part of it. I can tell you that. And so we have a lot to rebuild and renew. Worship team, you guys can come out, and I want to close by reading you one last story that, co- that ends the first chapter in the book, Bowling Alone. You know, it's easy to say this kind of stuff. You know, it's not that big of a deal. It's a small thing. And I think this illustrates how just being together leads to big things. So this is Robert Putman and Bowling Alone. He says, this is the story. Before October 29th, 1997, John Lambert and Andy Boshma knew each other only through their local bowling league at Yipsy Arbor Lanes in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Anyone from Ypsilanti, Michigan? Okay. Lambert, a 64-year-old retired employee of the University of Michigan Hospital, had been on a kidney transplant waiting list for three years when Boschman, a 33-year-old accountant, learned, and casu- learned casually of Lambert's need and unexpectedly approached him to offer to donate one of his own kidneys. Andy saw something in me that others didn't, said Lambert. When we were in the hospital, Andy said to me, John, I really like you and I have a lot of respect for you, and I wouldn't hesitate to do this all over again. Boschman, describing this, said, I got choked up. I want to return the feeling. I obviously feel a kinship with Lambert. I cared about him before, but now I'm really rooting for him. This moving story speaks for itself, but the photograph that accompanied the report in the Ann Arbor News reveals that in addition to their differences in profession and generation, generation, Boshma is white and Lambert is an African-American. And this is what he says. That they bowled together made all the difference. In small ways like this and in larger ways too. We Americans, or let's just say 
We ask cornerstoneins, whatever that is, because we can't say cornerstoners. <laughs> we Americans, we cornerstoners, need to reconnect with one another. Small ways and big ways, it's where life happens. It's where life happens. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you've given us a plan here. I'm grateful for that. So as a pastor of this church, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the similarities of our story to the story of Nehemiah. May we all hear your voice calling us back to one another. May we find you there. May we find joy and purpose, celebration. May we find all those things. But Father, I ask as we start this series that you would give us our next steps in a way that each one of us can take our part, that we can stand side by side, that we can build together, renew together, restore together, reflect together. Let it be. Let it happen here. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's stand together.